Okay, our scripture today is from Romans 5. We even take pride in our problems because we know that trouble produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. This hope doesn't put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. While we were still weak at the right moment, Christ died for the ungodly people. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Will y'all pray with me? Dear God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together in worship. We pray that um, as we uh, together sing and honor and hear um, of your glory, that you will um, bring a peace and um, measure of reassurance upon us and um, we we pray that um, God we pray that your presence will just overwhelm us and um, and restore us in your presence this morning amen y'all can have a seat <coughs> my name is Brody uh, I'm the pastoral intern here at Oak Church um, it's really good to see all of you and to be here with you today. Um, I'm uh, really grateful to be able to contribute to our sermon series in uh, the fruit of the spirit. Um, and as we uh, kind of explore the fruit of the spirit, um, it's been interesting to think about this list. This is a, a list from um, Galatians chapter 5 of Christian characteristics, basically. And I think that if you grew up in church, this is probably a pretty familiar list. It's, it's one that shapes a lot of the self-understanding of a lot of churches. But when we zoom out and think about this list, Fruit of the Spirit, um, it's, it's really remarkable and kind of odd. It's not what we would reasonably expect from a list of characteristics of the Christian life. And I say that, first of all, just because of the title of the list, the fruit of the Spirit, can be confusing. The words fruit and spirit seem to our modern sensibilities to sort of represent two opposites of an extreme. Fruit is one of the most earthly, base, and literally dirty things that we interact with on a daily basis. Fruit, and we might add you know, vegetables and nuts and seeds and stuff like that. They, they represent the bare minimum of our survival. Long before we could read or write or form theological treatises and thoughts or have philosophical dialogue, as a species, we had to learn to find and grow fruit. It's, in a certain sense, primitive, yet it's also a feature of our life that we can't seem to escape. No matter how modern or technical or digital we grow as a society, we seem to always need fruit that comes from the dirt. It literally pulls us back to our roots. It reminds us that we're earthly and we're analog and we're forever destined to be human. And I think that we tend to think of spirit uh, on the opposite side of that spectrum. 
The spiritual realm is the realm of thought. It's lofty, philosophical, intellectual, maybe emotional. It's the realm of the indoors. And whereas fruit might be the realm of the barn and the plow, spirit is usually the realm of the bookcase and the desk and the pew and the altar. Spirituality is clean, it's air-conditioned, it's transcendent, it's otherworldly. But the, this extended metaphor that Paul uses, the fruit of the spirit, sort of breaks down these categories um, and doesn't let us sit comfortably with that partition. The spirit, far from being distanced and otherworldly, far away and lofty, is in the dirt, gathering fruit and making things grow. The spirit's growing that fruit in us. After all, we're, we're the humans who God made by scooping up dirt and breathing into it spirit. And it's important to remember that this fruit that we're talking about in this series is not our fruit. It's not the spiritual fruit of Brody, or insert your name. It's the spirit's fruit. This is the fruit of the person to whom the spirit has been given access. My grandfather passed away a few weeks ago, and I've been thinking about him a lot. Um, he was this mechanical genius and tinkerer. He was always in the garage building or working on something. And the week before he died, he and my uncle were working on fixing up an old car. And in the process, uh, my grandfather's favorite wood-handled wood screwdriver broke. And he'd had this screwdriver for decades. And he was really frustrated when it broke because it had broken several times over the decades, and each time he'd fix it. After he died, my uncle went over to his house to gather some of his things. And he went into the garage, and he saw that screwdriver sitting in the vise of his workbench, repaired. It was one of the last things that my grandfather did. It's a funny thing to fix a screwdriver because the screwdriver is the thing you use to fix everything else. And in thinking about this process of bearing the fruit of the spirit, I keep thinking about my grandfather and that screwdriver. And like that screwdriver, Christians are meant to be part of the spirit's work of putting the broken world back together. We're called into the process of this grand restoration that the spirit has enacted. And we might be helpful for a really long time, but there's days when we break. And the things that make us useful to the Spirit, our character, our Christ-likeness, our virtue, or whatever else, just needs repair. And we go back to the workbench again and again. And, and at a certain level, maybe for, for the maturity of the Christian life, looks like going back to that workbench on a daily basis. But also notice the kind of characteristic that Paul says make a Christian useful to the Spirit's work. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are action words, which I, I think is really interesting. They're not thought words. Um, there's an artist from Austin, Texas named Scott Erickson who recently posted this beautiful uh, drawing on Instagram that says all of this better than I can. Um, and here's his caption that he had along with it. 
The fruit of the Spirit is not words, but verbs. In other words, the way to participate in the Spirit's work is, is not with a witty tweet or a blog post or a book or even a sermon. At least not unless all of those words and thoughts are built upon a robust foundation of Spirit-filled verbs. And so as we continue in this series, we're going to try to remind ourselves to ground our faithfulness in action. And today, the fruit of the Spirit that we have in front of us is patience. Um, I was talking to a friend uh, earlier this week about doing a sermon on patience, and he said, are you going to do an extremely long sermon as an exercise in patience? And uh, I, guess I, I guess we'll find out. Uh, so just, just buckle in. Um, I also just want to point out that they chose the youngest person on, on pastoral staff to give a sermon on patience. And maybe that's because I'm naive enough. I haven't lived through enough patience to know how hard it really is. And so I think I can speak eloquently about it. <laughs> maybe that's an advantage. We'll see. But I wonder what comes to your mind when you first think of patience. For me, I, I think of my grandmother who, when I was a little kid, I was staying at her house and she was starting to prepare for dinner. And I rushed in the kitchen and asked when dinner would be ready. And she's chopping vegetables. And then she takes this big old knife and points it right in my face and says, patience is a virtue. Acquire it if you can. Found seldom in a woman, but never in a man. <laughs> and I don't know if that's right, but I don't usually question grandma. Uh, but in any case, I think all of us have some things to learn about patience. And that's partly because we don't always know what patience will need to look like in any given circumstance. Patience takes a lot of different forms. There's a certain kind of patience that's required when we need to be ready for action at a moment's notice, but remain still and steadfast until that time. That's like, that's like the patience of a, a fisherman. Or there's the patience that requires letting go of things you can't control, even if you feel responsible for them. That, I imagine, is the patience of parenthood. There's the patience of confronting failure, going back to the drawing board and starting over. There's the patience of desperation, of frantically trying one attempt after another to restore something that deep down you already know is lost. There's the patience of a global pandemic where everything shuts down and we're sent home and we don't really know what we're waiting for. Are we waiting for a vaccine? Are we waiting for some threshold? of vaccination? Are we waiting for better testing? It's, it's hard to know, and we're just stuck in the meantime, waiting. There's the patience of sickness, of people who walk into a hospital as a person and suddenly, against their will, become a patient, labeled with a virtue that they may not even want. The patient of a hospital or a doctor is just waiting to be acted upon. They may feel that all of their hopes are in the hands of a stranger. They can pray to hear good news. They, they try to manage their pain. They reassure their loved ones, but mostly they wait. In these cases, patience is afflicted upon us whether we want it or not. And in times like these when patience is required, it's because the thing we're waiting for is not helped by our further activity. 
If we try to act out of urgency or frustration, we can often end up making matters worse. It's a time when our direct action cannot bring about the thing that we're waiting for. But that doesn't mean that we give up on meaningful action altogether. Often people consider patience to be times of complete passivity. And maybe that's because when we take on the role of a patient and walk into a doctor's office, that's what it is. You need to wait in the waiting room and just be there and do nothing until your time is ready. But patience in, in the sense that scripture is talking about here doesn't look like that. In times of patience, we aren't called to do nothing. In fact, it's active moments of patience that can often become the catalyst for hearing a call towards something that we never would have expected or thought for ourselves. These are times of learning to hear God's call on you in new directions or to discover beauty in a new way. You may not be able to act in the direction that you think you ought to, but there will be signposts and arrows that God puts in your life to show you interesting, beautiful, creative, and transformative work to do in the meantime. I think of the story in Mark chapter 5 where there's a woman who has had some sort of blood disorder or hemorrhage for the past 12 years, and for 12 years she's been waiting for healing. She's been sent from one doctor to the next, racking up piles of medical bills, unable to do anything definitive to speed up the process. And in the midst of this long, arduous process of waiting, she sees Jesus. And suddenly she feels this pull to just touch him, lay hands on him, knowing that something good and restorative will come out of it. Maybe it's instinct, or maybe it's the call of the Holy Spirit, but whatever it is, she decides to touch his cloak, and she feels healing power flow into her. And in that moment, she's healed. And when Jesus finds out who it was who touched him, he, he looks at her and says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. She was waiting for 12 years simply to be restored to life as it was before, to end the pain and to get back to business as usual. But in the meantime, she felt this pull towards faithfulness in Christ, who not only restored her, but presumably called her into a life of faithfulness that goes far beyond business as usual. Now, the, the resolution of most of our seasons of patience won't be as dramatic and miraculous as, as the direct healing of the hand of Jesus, but I still think that we have a lot to learn from this woman. For instance, I, I wonder how she knew that Jesus could heal her. Where did that faithfulness come from? She, she suffered for 12 years, never getting a straight answer from doctors. And so I assume that she had 12 years of experience learning to listen to the voice of God's call. Maybe it was 12 years of recognizing the Spirit say to her, quit your job, this isn't healthy for you, you need to care for yourself, just trust me. Or knock on that neighbor's door, someone inside needs a shoulder to cry on. Or stop responding to your mother-in-law on Facebook, it's not helping anybody. <laughs> In seasons of patience, we have no choice but to strain to hear God's voice. And in that time, our discernment muscle gets stronger and stronger as we're trying to hear something from God. But if we think of patience as inaction, 
and passivity, we won't hear a call towards anything. And so it's important to remain vigilant, receptive, and active, even in seasons where we feel like we can't do anything. So patience is not passivity, and patience is also not withdrawal. Sometimes the grand vision of God's salvation and the future of the kingdom of God that we trust is coming can lead us to just sit on our hands and wait. This is patience on a large scale, a cosmic scale. And you'll hear from some Christians that, you know, this world, it's not our true home. We're waiting for God to take us to our true home. And in the meantime, we should just bide our time and stay out of trouble. Don't get too involved in whatever's going on in this world in the meantime. But it's important to recognize that, that it's no virtue to be disconnected and unaffected by the suffering in the world and in our communities. Sometimes, under the guise of patience, powerful people will maintain the status quo, keeping the suffering and the hurting under oppression, and tell them to wait, have patience. Patience in this way can end up being used as a weapon to quiet the outcries of the suffering. But the work of Christian patience, as we wait for that ultimate kingdom of God, is the meanwhile work of being that kingdom here and now and acting in the face of suffering. Patience is meanwhile work, but this meanwhile work is complicated. Right? We can hold in our hearts a vision of the kingdom of God that we know is coming one day, but never see it fully in our lifetimes. And patience is about living in that tension, that constant discomfort of, of knowing what God's vision for the world might be and, and not being able to enact it fully. Um, the political theologian Reinhold Niebuhr has this convicting quote where he says, no possible historic justice is sufferable without the Christian hope, but any illusion of a world of perfect love without imperfect harmonies of justice must ultimately turn the dream of love into a nightmare of tyranny and injustice. In our, in our act of being the kingdom, ushering in the kingdom, if we don't learn to live with the discomfort and compromises of varying interests, then our only option is tyranny, and that's not what Christian patience looks like. We'll always live in a world of competing interests, compromise, and baby steps of justice, but that doesn't mean Christians should just withdraw. It's important to remember that. God isn't expecting us to waste our time here as we wait for God's kingdom. God is precise in God's timing. Our verse today says, while we were still weak, at the right moment, Christ died for ungodly people. The Greek word here for time or moment is one you might be familiar with. It's, it's the word kairos, which is a hard word to translate. It, it's sort of a, a powerful and precise moment of transformation. And there's a kairos moment of Christ's coming to die for our weakness and sins that's described all over the Gospels. And in Mark 1.15, it's described this way. The kingdom has come, or sorry, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. 
The kingdom is here. The time has come. We live between these two kairos moments, between the Christ event where the kingdom has come and the future kairos moment of God's inauguration of God's kingdom. Those moments that we live between, they have shaken the fabric of history and their effects reverberate forward and backward in time such that our action in being God's kingdom here and now glimmers and has reflections of of these moments. And as we wait for the next Kairos moment, the powerful, precise moment of God's transformation, we're called not to withdraw from the world, but to permeate this world. Here's how Jesus tells his disciples to wait for the next Kairos moment. These are Jesus' instructions for patience in the Christian life. He says this in Acts chapter 1. It is not for you to know the times or the dates. There's our word kairos again. The Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What he's describing is patience that does not retreat from the world, but builds a deeper engagement with it. That's the patience of the Christian life. And patience has a frustrating and funny relationship with suffering. Patience is not a retreat from suffering. It is, in fact, the entering into suffering, both yours and others, with hope. The New Testament word for patience is is translated sometimes as long-suffering. If you read an old-fashioned version, maybe the King James or something like that, you might see this word long-suffering. This is closely related to, to biblical themes of endurance and perseverance. There's an ancient theologian named Tertullian who wrote this about patience. Let wrongdoing grow weary from your patience, which is such a challenge. There's a historian named Alan Crider who believes that patience was the key to success of the early church. In all of the turmoil of the Roman Empire and the persecution of those early centuries, the Christians did not panic or grow hopeless or act impulsively. He explains it this way. The Christians believed that God is patient and that Jesus visibly embodied patience. And they concluded that they, trusting in God, should also be patient, not controlling events, not anxious or in a hurry, and never using force to achieve their ends. Let's talk about that last point. One of his main points here is that patience, Christian patience, is fundamentally nonviolent. In fact, I think we can think of most violence as the attempt to force a desired result in the time of patience. Many violent impulses then, they don't come from evil people, they come from anxious people who are eager for the thing they're waiting for but feel helpless to do anything in the meantime other than act violently. But our call is to resist violent impulses and settle into the rhythm of patience even when it hurts. Patience is the virtue of staying in the hard thing long after reasonable people would retreat or give up or turn violent. 
because you know that there's more to the story. Paul explains this so beautifully in our verse from Romans 5. We even take pride in our problems because we know that trouble produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. This hope doesn't put us to shame because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. While we were still weak, at the right moment, Christ died for ungodly people. There's a historian of the 20th century named Charles Payne, and he tells the story of organizers in Mississippi in 1962. There's one named LaVon Brown who was helping black residents of Mississippi register to vote. And at that time, registering to vote was almost impossible for black Mississippians. There were intimidation tactics, literacy tests, and poll taxes, all designed to keep black people away from the ballot box. But LaVon Brown and other organizers from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee would walk door to door asking people to register, going with them to the courthouse, helping them pay their poll taxes, and moving house to house so that bad actors couldn't find them. He tells one story that on, on one day in August of 1962, a hundred people were contacted. Ten agreed to register. Three actually showed up at the courthouse. And those three were all scared away by an intimidating sheriff. These organizers could have given up. They could have retreated into normal jobs, kept themselves safe, had families, and some did. But most stayed in the hard thing with forbearance, long-suffering, and patience long after reasonable people could be expected to give up. Patience is the part of the virtuous life that keeps us coming back again and again to try one more time, even when all signs point to failure. I think that this is what the Apostle Paul was saying. In the moments of our greatest weakness, Christ died to release us from the despondency of hopelessness and suffering and, and, and bring us birth into a new world. And as a result, the love of God has been poured into our hearts through God's presence, through his spirit. And knowing all of that, we can be confident that staying in the hard thing is not foolish or pointless. It doesn't put us to shame. The willingness of followers to stay in the hard thing is part of how Christ is showing up in the world. And not only that, <clears throat> But in some mysterious way, excuse me, <clears throat> in some mysterious way, it is bringing beauty out of us. Our God is a God who stays with us when we stay in the hard thing. So in the face of trouble, we not only hold steady, but we come out the other side with endurance, character, and hope refined by the fire. We pray with me. God, we believe you are a patient God. And as frustrating as that can be in, in times of urgency and desperation, we pray that you will invite us into your patience. We pray that you will build in us such a trust of your spirit 
that we can act foolish trying the same thing again and again, knowing that there's more to this story, knowing that it does not put us to shame to act in Christ's likeness again and again, even in the face of failure. God, <clears throat> we pray that as we continue in worship, you will pull our spirits into your presence and restore our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>